This is the 85th uh, podcast in this series and is dedicated to Fred Rogers, uh, a dialogue partner who has uh, tremendously encouraged me to um, look at some of the issues that uh, today's podcast deals with, and I dedicate this to Fred. And also, I just would like to remind the listener that there is a Gmail address for feedback on the podcasts, and that's pzspodcast at gmail.com, p-z-s-p-o-d-c-a-s-t at gmail.com. Note, there's no apostrophe. And the title of today's podcast is Protestant Anglicans in Supermarionation. Now, the key to the success of this podcast is going to be the um, kind of light tone that I hope to bring it, rather than a polemic or controversial tone. And because the particular issue, which is a haberdashery of Episcopalian clergy in Hollywood and media, or shall I say, pop culture perspective, uh, because um, it is a, a haberdashery for Episcopalian clergy, which has actually very large ideological background in the history of the Episcopal Church, and to some extent in the history of uh, mainstream churches in America in any event, and England as well, um, there's a lot of baggage for this theme. But I'd like to take the baggage, uh, cut away all the baggage, and just describe um, Protestant Anglicans in supermarionation. Now, what I'm getting at is that um, if if you know about these things, and, and you, 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 if you couldn't help but see it if you went to an Episcopal church today, but you might be of an age when you didn't um, have the information to interpret it in terms of the past, just because of where the church is and where you are and how you've come into faith, however that's been, or non-faith. Um, <clears throat> what um, is so striking is that in 1979, when the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, which it used to be called the 1928 Prayer Book, was um, superseded by the 1979 prayer book, an enormous change came over uh, the church in terms of its liturgy and its outward formation. And uh, this change was reflected uh, particularly and obviously in the way the clergy uh, dressed themselves. Because prior to 1979, the principal service for most Episcopal parishes in this country was called morning prayer. It was a liturgical and dignified service from the old prayer book, or what was then called simply the prayer book, But it was not um, focused on the Holy Communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist. But in 1979, the revisers of the prayer book, for all sorts of reasons, changed the emphasis and made the um, principal service of the church and packaged the liturgy of the church so that the principal Sunday morning event for Episcopal churches in the vast majority of cases, if you used the prayer book as it was intended by the revisers to be used, would become the Eucharist or Holy Communion. Uh, And the Eucharist is the word that was in parlance very quickly and is now the universal expression. Now, this meant that the priests or ministers or rectors or vicars or curates or associate ministers, however you want to describe it, were now um, addressed in uh, robes that applied to the Eucharistic or sacerdotal or priestly function of the uh, church rather than the uh, preaching function of the church. And traditionally, the preaching function was reflected by a white um, um, garment called a surplice placed over a black cassock, a black robe, and wearing a tippet or scarf, which was black, a kind of black scarf and an academic hood, which reflected historic the preaching of the word. And yet, when you turned it to the Eucharist emphasis, then the clergy person, um, in that time it was a man, and now it's women and men, uh, the proper um, function was uh, a cassock and surplus and stole, or the uh, colored uh, kind of scarf that you would wear 
around yourself, stole in the proper sense. And then, because uh, there was an increasing um, connection with more liturgical or sacerdotal churches, especially the Roman Catholic Church, the uh, priest would then no longer wear the cassock and surplice, but would rather wear something called the cassock alb. Well, I won't go into all the definitions. You can look it all up. But I'm really interested in how this played out in the movies. Because if you want to know how things are going in the culture, uh, always look at the movies, uh, understand the movies. I've just been watching Downton Abbey with Mary, and it's a wonderful evocation of life in a great country house, uh, in this case before World War I and during uh, World War I, and there's an awful lot of... uh, um, 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 interest in uh, sociological and political or social change that is reflected in the relationship between upstairs, the noble family, and all the interactions of the noble family and its hangers-on and friends and acquaintances, and what goes on downstairs, which is the servant class. Well, uh, what is interesting to me is uh, it's very well done, uh, but if you look at Downton Abbey, in light of uh, Downton Abbey's about the fifth incarnation of this t- very interesting topic to people, a kind of soap opera about uh, English stratification uh, before World War One or before World War Two, as it turns out, you'll go back to upstairs, downstairs, and then the Foresight Saga and a number of different um, um, wonderful English dramatizations of this. But you'll find that the the you learn more about what people are thinking about today in terms of the portrait of how they uh, regard history was played out than you do about history itself. In other words, certain things are going on in the screenplay for Downton Abbey that reflect uh, England in the year 2011 and 2012, uh, whereas in um, Upstairs, Downstairs, certain things were going on in the class structure that more reflected a 1970s or 60s ambience or understanding. And this is always true. Hollywood and television <coughs> reflects current mores, o tempora o mores, rather than uh, the actual facts of the time, because that's the people that produce these things are living now. So you're going to get our views contemporarily rather than the way it actually was, or at least those um, the way it actually was is going to be seen through a lens of the year 2012. Well, um, because uh, uh, clergy were regarded universally in America, at least in the, on the surface, as being fine and good role models and people like doctors and so forth, uh, uh, people with strong uh, uh, um, credibility in the years prior to, say, 1979, and you couldn't really depict a terrible clergyman, and if you did, it was very controversial, like Elmer Gantry. But for the most part, clergy were, were regarded as good. So when clergy appeared, there were more clergy in movies prior to 1979 because clergy were, they weren't like sort of crisis counselors or MSWs today or doctors only, uh, like in the you know, contagion. They were um, regarded as positively and so you had a lot of clergy. So there are a lot of clergy pictured in pre-1979 um, more than today. And today, you know, it might be like the new blob where the clergy are almost always, uh, characteristically, I should say, not always, but characteristically portrayed as being sort of awful and hypocritical. Uh, and at, 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 uh, at worst, they're downright criminals. And at best, they're... Um, Silly, like in um, Roland Atkinson, you know, they're they're um, purely outside, outside characters brought in for a laugh. Now, 
This was not true in the days of the old prayer book. And this is just a, a quick survey of some of the Episcopal Church types uh, that you would have in Hollywood and what it really says about the extraordinarily interesting change in just the superficial uh, matter of clerical haberdashery and clothing. Now, let me give you some examples. That's an awfully long introduction, but um, everybody will say that they love the bishop's wife. This is a 1947 movie with um, David Niven and Loretta Young and Cary Grant, and it is a wonderful movie. Absolutely classic film uh, that is shown at Christmas time, and it's I think it's even being shown very soon again after Christmas on uh, on TCM. It's sort of a, what's called a perennial classic, and it's a very good movie. Uh, and it uh, based upon a book quite different from the movie entitled The Bishop's Wife by Robert Nathan, who wrote it I think in the late twenties. The Bishop's Wife tells the story of a very uptight and worldly. Uh, bishop who sort of lost touch with feelings himself and the very essence of what his actual calling is supposed to uh, involve and actually constitute and is out of touch with his wife and has become focused on fundraising and building a giant cathedral in a northeastern city. Now, this uh, bishop is straightened out uh, by uh, a, uh, a lovely angel named Michael, uh, played by Cary Grant. And in the course of an hour and a half, Involving several dramatic situations, the bishop comes to his senses. A whole lot of troubled people are redeemed by a genuinely Christian, graceful vision, and especially the marriage uh, and the fathering of uh, of um, David Niven, who characteristically played these types at that point in movie history, uh, is sort of saved and helped. And then the the uh, the uh, angel disappears, Cary Grant, as if he never uh, came in the first place. <clears throat> and the book is very good, by the way, and shows by Robert Nathan, who came from a really was a uh, by his own own clear admission, a liberal Jewish writer, um, Robert Nathan, for whatever reason, understood and uh, had obviously known, met, and uh, observed Episcopalians in the way they actually live. And so the bishop's wife is actually surprisingly uh, true to life as it was in the Episcopal Church. And there are certain universals, um, but it's changed dramatically. But one of the things that any Episcopalian gets a huge kick out of, especially if you lived through both uh, dispensations of Episcopal haberdashery, is the way the bishop is attired in the concluding scene of the film, which <clears throat> takes place in the in the church, in the cathedral, and it involves David Niven preaching a very touching, lovely sermon on Christmas Eve that is fully credible, and yet, if you'll notice, he's dressed as a bishop used to be dressed and is almost never seen today. That is to say, he's dressed in the uh, Rochette and Shamir, but in a, in a um, black. Uh, bishops prior to 1979, although they're even before that, they were uh, dressed. Uh, they would often wear the, uh, the 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 garment underneath was was red, and uh, was red after 1979. But the traditional haberdashery of an English uh, and American bishop was uh, white and black, always exclusively, unless you were more in the high church direction, which was quite rare in actual fact. So if you look at pictures of bishops uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you'll see them in white and black. And after about the mid-70s, you'll see them in uh, white and red. And uh, a marker for this would be the film by Alfred Hitchcock, Family Plot. Uh, I think it's Hitchcock's last film, which reflects the newer ambience. There's a very traditional service filmed in an Episcopal cathedral, I think in Los Angeles, 
Uh, and everything about the service is correct. I think they actually filmed it during a real service, except, uh, but the haberdashery of the bishop, he's dressed as a bishop. He's kidnapped by, uh, by Karen Black and, uh, uh, her uh, uh, lover uh, in this extraordinarily effective scene, uh, which is a comment on uh, people's docility in church, such that a bishop could actually, in front of everyone's eyes, be kidnapped. But in any event, uh, the bishop is simply dressed uh, differently uh, in uh, the great service in Family Plot. And today he'd be dressed with a um, 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 mitre and uh, a, uh, what a, um, uh, a chasuble, I mean, sorry, a cope, uh, whereas in The Bishop's Wife he's depicted in the old uh, way. Bishops uh, prior to 1979 and certainly in the 1940s and 30s very rarely wore mitres and um, uh, copes. Uh, do you know, by the way, if you're interested in these matters, that no Archbishop of Canterbury uh, wore a mitre uh, from uh, the um, reign of uh, Edward VI, this incl- actually from the reign of Mary uh, in the mid-16th uh, century um, through the early um, 20th century, for 400 years, no Archbishop of Canterbury ever wore a mitre. Hence, you would not have uh, seen them wearing uh, copes and chasubles, certainly not chasubles. And uh, copes is the sort of big, uh, large uh, cape uh, that you all talk about later in terms of uh, the Princess Bride and Star Wars. But uh, what, um, for 400 years, uh, none wore them. And do you know who the first bishop, Archbishop of Canterbury to wear a mitre was? You'll laugh, Cosmo Lang. Now, Cosmo Lang, for the uh, culture mavens among us, uh, is depicted uh, with a such um, uh, butter wouldn't met in your mouth a sort of malice and smallness uh, in the movie The King's Speech and uh, by Derek Jacobi plays the role and uh, there's such a satire uh, and actually a true satire of uh, Cosmo Lang's uh, petty um, posturings um, that were quite well-intentioned but entirely unconscious in actual history in uh, the King's Speech. And he was the first one. Now, Edward King had worn uh, uh, more Catholic uh, vestments as the Bishop of Lincoln, and he'd actually been put to trial for it, I believe, and acquitted in a famous case. Uh, but the first Archbishop of Canterbury for 400 years to wear the kind of vestments that bishops wear today uh, was not until the early 20th century, which does lend perspective on this. Now, the bishop's wife, if you want to see the way bishops used to be dressed. Hollywood reflects it perfectly. Now uh, I'm going to um, talk about the sort of uh, high watermark of uh, uh, Protestant Anglican vesture and haberdashery in uh, the movies in relationship to the character that uh, characters that Richard Burton uh, generally plays. Now a quick um, excursus on Father of the Bride. Father of the Bride is a film with Elizabeth Taylor and Spencer Tracy that was an enormous success and was remade not all that long ago. And in Father of the Bride, if you want to see an Episcopal wedding as it used to be. Um, uh, uh, conducted in its perfection. See the original Father of the Bride, which is a meant to be a funny um, and, and really affectionate portrayal of a s- embarrassed and. Uh, um, loving but awkward dad in relation to uh, his daughter's marriage. But at the very end, the movie gets serious. For whatever reasons, it gets serious commercially or whoever told anybody. It gets serious. But what's interesting about it, and I've seen this with um, with Mabel Shepard, who was um, the great head of the altar guild at the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, who definitely knew how it had been done. And uh, and uh, we watched Father the Bride with such love because Father the Bride depicts 
uh, clergy as they actually were and services as they were actually conducted. And it's a letter-perfect uh, portrayal of the old Episcopal uh, service for marriage, and it's really very touching and very well done. I recommend you see it. And by the way, a second excursus, uh, when you see Mrs. Miniver with Greer Garson and uh, what's his name, Walter Pidgeon, you'll also see a classic service of morning prayer, uh, very beautifully portrayed both in the early part of the uh, service uh, movie and at the end um, in the bombed-out church. And uh, uh, there, too, you'll see clergy properly attired prior to 1979. It's just an interesting reflection, and that's Hollywood. Now, however, if you want to really get an insight into Protestant Anglicanism, or shall I say Episcopalian, um, Protestant Episcopalianism. Remember, it used to be called, and still legally is, Pecusa, Protestant Episcopal Church in the USA. The P was dropped in practical usage, although it's still legally part of the name, and uh, we're now called Ecusa, or today we're called the Episcopal Church. But uh, um, in the old days, believe it or not, you would, you would actually say, you know, I'm a member of St. Michael's uh, Church P.E., Protestant Episcopal. You very often would sign your letters if you were a clergy person or a member of the vestry or um, the rector, uh, rector of, um, you know, St. Michael and St. George's, parenthesis P.E., Protestant Episcopal. But those days have are so distant and in such recession that I can't even begin to tell you. But if you want to see um, uh, uh, Protestant uh, uh, Episcopalians in, in their um, in in full uh, full ascent, in full the man in full always follow Richard Burton because Richard Burton at least in two particular places portrays the sort of he is the absolute um, um, litmus uh, locus classicus of uh, the of haberdashery prior to 1979 first in his uh, highly um, um, Dramatic, some would say histrionic performance of a clergyman in breakdown. There's the opening sequence of uh, the movie Night of the Iguana, based on the Tennessee Williams play, in which the rector has a breakdown in a Hollywood set of a church. And uh, he's an Episcopal minister, and, and he completely goes to pieces in the pulpit. <clears throat> but notice how he's dressed, cassock and surplice and tippet or scarf. He's dressed for morning prayer, and uh, he is. Uh, that is the way Episcopalian clergy looked uh, in uh, until, as I said, 1979. <clears throat> and then there was a change, and now Episcopal clergy generally would wear a cassock alb. Um, a friend of mine, Fred Hill, whom I've referred to on this uh, site, he's long dead and a wonderful, wonderful man with a wrinkle, used to say that the cassock alb was the leisure suit of the new rising Episcopal clergy. Well, um, it, now Episcopal clergy wear this um, uh, garb called a classic alb and a stole and very often a uh, a chasuble over it and as they celebrate communion, which is the principal service. And I acknowledge all that. But in um, Night of the Iguana, Richard Burton is dressed the way clergy used to dress. Now, I'm coming to something that's really funny because I'm going to tell you why I did this podcast in the first place. I haven't really... Um, um, put my cards on the table. But don't worry, there's nothing uh, bad or worrisome about this. This will be something to delight the listener, I hope. But before I do, let me um, mention one other film in which we see uh, the uh, Protestant Episcopalians in, uh, in, uh, in uh, full... The word is, I'm escaping the word, uh, you know the expression. And uh, that movie is the 1965 um, notorious Hollywood film entitled The Sandpiper. Now, this 
particular film, which is based on a an idea by Martin Ransohoff, then adopted by a family called Camp uh, for the screen, and then scripted by the famous Dalton Trumbo and also Michael Wilson. This uh, was a vehicle, a star vehicle for uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor uh, during their very famous and high-profile romance. Now, this movie... Made in 1965 is notorious because people consider it so over the top in its um, sort of what is thought to be a kind of false drama. It is such a kind of time capsule of sort of early anti-authoritarian attitudes, making it into a Hollywood mainstream picture. And uh, it's considered such a kind of a... um, um, a summation of a kind of um, middle-brow anti-authoritarianism uh, 60s mindset that people can't really see it. It's lost its ability to be seen, although it's now in a beautiful new uh, DVD transfer, because it's sort of all put into kind of a category. <clears throat> and I've seen it, and I love the movie. And uh, it's um, I saw it when it came out, and I've seen it recently, and then I saw it again. And it's really quite a good movie, although you can say so much about this movie, and I don't want to get into a big, long thing about it. But what is particularly interesting about The Sandpiper is the question of ecclesiastical self-understanding of an Episcopal priest. And uh, the Sandpiper tells the sorry tale of a, uh, the headmaster of an Episcopal school, not a parish priest, but the headmaster of a rather snobbish, supposedly waspy Episcopal school, St. Simeon School um, in um, near Monterey, California, uh, on the coast in this beautiful area near Big Sur. And uh, the headmaster, Dr. Edward Hewitt, who's uh, played by Richard Burton, f- who's married to the very very lovely and really, really terrific um, Claire, played by Eva Marie Saint, falls in love with the bohemian free spirit artist on the beach who has a sort of a shack uh, at Big Sur, played by Elizabeth Taylor, who plays a character called Laura Reynolds. And uh, because the headmaster of the school is very kind to her wayward pre-teenage son, um, Elizabeth Taylor becomes enamored of this man and he of her. And one thing, leads to another, and it was considered controversial in its day. And taking all that aside, and it has a really very credible ending. I find the character of the of the headmaster's wife very well played and very sympathetically done. She's not a caricature at all, although she does reflect what you might call a certain type of clergy wife, um, and uh, positively. Um, she... Um, She's people say who criticize her don't know she has nothing to do. That's not true. She has a lot to do. People who say that just have not known people like uh, Eva Marie Saint. I've known a ton of people like Claire Hewitt in uh, right up close uh, in uh, uh, the Sandpiper. Um, and then they talk all about sort of the pottery barn interior of Laura Reynolds, Liz Taylor's shack, and so forth and so on. But what is uh, interesting for our purposes is the way that um, he regards himself as an Episcopal priest. And it comes out in one key scene. He visits her uh, and uh, for the second time, and he's fully above board at this point, but soon to fall. And she is being painted half-nude by Charles Bronson. This is an early Charles Bronson role. And he, is, he plays a beatnik with an attitude. Very anti-religious beatnik. There's a Jack Kerouac character, by the way, in the movie, played by an African-American actor who plays the Jack Kerouac voice authentically. But uh, Charles Bronson is painting her, and uh, uh, he razzes the the priest uh, who is dressed without a collar, a coat and tie, and he's uh, very abusive verbally to the... um, to Dr. Hewitt, uh, and he says, Reverend, I've always wanted to ask a reverend a question. 
And then Richard Burton sort of looks at his, uh, at his palms and he says to him, um, the word reverend is a, an adjective, uh, is a predicate uh, describing a title. If, as in the reverend doctor, if you wish to address me properly, please call me doctor or mister. Now, let me repeat that. This is the exact lines. I, I think I have it. I don't have it in front of me, but I've, I've, it's fresh. Uh, the word reverend is a adjective for a title. Please address me, if you would, properly as either doctor or mister. Well, notice he does not say father. That's, now, today he would, be, he would be Father Edward today. In the movie, he is Dr. Hewitt because he has an earned PhD. But he says, if failing that, failing calling me doctor, call me mister. Now, that is in the context of a 1965 Hollywood movie with Richard Burton, Charles Bronson, and Elizabeth Taylor has got to be one of the, one of the howlers of all time in present context. For him to say that so emphatically, to straighten out Charles Bronson, who does not have, you know, what were you? It, and Charles Bronson is a really mean, angry character. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about that. He plays it well, but he's not a nice guy. Uh, He's the village atheist, but with a real attitude. Uh, and uh, Dr. Hewitt is doctor or mister. Now, later on, there's a wonderful service uh, that is actually fairly accurately done in the St. Simeon School Chapel in which uh, uh, our friend Richard Burton preaches another sermon. And again, he's addressed, he's, he's wearing cassock surplus and a tippet. Now, even though the little boys who are singing and the acolytes are dressed in the sort of kata, the short surplus and cassock that little boy acolytes would be, but the whole thing works very, very well if you're coming at it from a long-term view of uh, Protestant Episcopalian haberdashery. Now, I'll uh, put my cards on the table and then we're done. The reason this uh, I got uh, interested in this is because in many ways the exception always proves the rule. And uh, my friend Michael Stein, who edits the wonderful Film Facts magazine, which I cannot recommend highly enough, out of uh, Evanston uh, in uh, the suburbs of Chicago, put me on to the great exception which proves the rule. Uh, You could say that. And this is the 1969 English-made marionette drama that was produced for television by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson entitled Secret Service. Now, you may say, what? That's a leap. Well, um, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson were um, a team, a very uh, successful team of English animation puppeteers who uh, invented a style of shooting sort of kids' television shows, always with a kind of fantastic or sci-fi bent, with marionettes and um, wonderful vehicles they designed for these marionettes, and marionettes that were very well um, uh, run with a lot of explosions. I can't quite describe the style, but you can go on YouTube and see the show uh, Fireball XL5. I wish I were a fireball. La la da 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 da. A fireball. A fireball. Da 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 da. Da, 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 da. Uh, these English shows, another one is Thunderbirds. That was probably the most famous one. Thunderbirds are go. Now, these came over to America for Saturday morning. They were kiddie shows for Saturday morning, uh, um, imported from the UK. And they're actually very good if you can um, hang in there with the conceit. 
which is the way it's done. It's a whole other thing. And they later went on to produce the television show UFO, the original English form with the character Striker, which, by the way, has one extremely religious episode, but that's another question. Uh, and they uh, produced Space 1999, which I think was their high point with Martin, with um, – Oh, that wonderful character actor who played in Outer Limits and later in The X-Files. It'll come back to me. Um, Landau uh, and also Barbara Bain. Now, um, the uh, first show, I believe, uh, that was um, produced at a very high level by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson was called Secret Service. It's 1969, and I've got every episode right here. Thanks to Michael Stein. And Secret Service tells the story of Father... Unwin. Father Unwin is the vicar of a parish in uh, southern England in the country who is actually um, also a, um, a spy for British intelligence, a very benign spy for an organization called Bishop. And I think it's British Intelligence Surveillance Ops and Procedures or something like that. But Bishop. And he is a real Anglican vicar, rector, and local clergyman of a country parish. And at the same time, a highly benign um, spy, anti, you might call him an anti-terrorist or counter-terrorist or counter-espionage agent of the uh, British uh, intelligence service called Bishop. And he, has, he reports to his actual bishop in the Church of England and to his bishop, who is played by a recurring character. And these all are marionettes. It's entirely done as marionettes. There's a little bit of live action for distant shots. But the show is hard to describe if you haven't seen it, but you can YouTube it. Secret Service. But what is particularly delightful for our purposes is that while he is called father, and they've made the housekeeper in the rectory, he's unmarried, but they've made the housekeeper kind of an Irish woman to almost make it like she's the Irish housekeeper in a Roman Catholic (coughs) presbytery a Roman Catholic rectory. Um, he's, he's Church of England. He's a Church of England rector. And he's father this and father that. And he has this sort of a gardener on the rectory estate or rectory grounds who turns who's actually his partner in crime, who's a, who helps him in his efforts to combat a foreign um, uh, espionage in southern England. Well, the show is ex- it's inconceivable today because it has a benign clergyman who's actually very smart and one Wonderful and often refers to God. He's always saying, we must believe in providence. We must believe in providence. He's constantly um, echoing religious uh, faithful language and prayer. And at the same time, he's always winning with wonderful contraptions and strange vehicles. He has the most amazing car and all these, he has a reducing ray to make his Matthew small so Matthew can accompany him and sort of get into installations when there's a spy. The show is a strange combination and I believe it only ran one season because it just didn't get through. And there's another aspect to the dialogue that made it a little supposedly hard for American audiences to understand, which I don't agree with. But that's not here nor there. This is the point. At the end of almost every segment, and there are 13 of them, at the end of almost every segment of Secret Service with the marionette Jerry and Sylvia Anderson characters fighting, um, usually it's Cold War espionage in southern England, for God and for the state, but it's very unchauvinistic. It's really delightful. 
At the end of almost every episode, the punchline always has Father Unwin in the pulpit. And it is a perfectly done a Church of England stone pulpit in front of his congregation. And he always sort of gives a kind of a, a maxim or a scriptural passage or a common sense saying. He even will quote um, um, popular statements like the tortoise and the hare uh, to make his point. And he's dressed as a Protestant Episcopalian or Protestant Anglican. He is always, even though he's called Father Unwin, and he seems to be a sort of mainstream Anglo-Catholic vicar wearing his cassock around for his rounds, he always preaches in cassock and surplice in the context of morning prayer. So if you want to see pure uh, Protestant Anglicans or Protestant Episcopalians in super marionation, because that was the um, the uh, word that was used for the Jerry and Sylvia Anderson's uh, um, st- uh, packaging, what they did with marionettes, which is fantastic and grew to a, a hugely interesting um, uh, cottage industry in uh, British television. This podcast is dedicated to Fred Rogers, but it is called Protestant Episcopalians in Super Marionation. And I I was pushed over the edge to do this by watching episodes of Secret Service from English television in 1969. Well, I'll just finish with a kind of a postscriptum to show you just to just all you need to do is click now. Go on your computer and click uh, on any news story of an Episcopal consecration in the last four or five years, or six or seven, even ten, but say the last four or five years, find a photograph that has been taken. should be easy to do. You could probably do it with Google Images. An Episcopal Church consecration, that is the service of ordination for a bishop. When a bishop is is consecrated as a bishop and becomes a bishop, he or she go through a service called uh, the consecration of a bishop. And other bishops gather to uh, consecrate this person as a bishop in the Church of God. And if you look under almost any photographs of consecration of a bishop, you are going to see a completely different aesthetic. Uh, I won't even tell you what you'll see. But specifically, try to uh, look at photographs that were taken right after the consecration in which the bishop and the presiding bishops or the various other bishops who were involved in the service are sort of gathered together, especially in this country. Episcopalian should be an American Episcopalian consecration. And look at the the haberdashery. Look at how the the new bishop is... uh, attired and how the other bishops around the new bishop are attired and you will see such a difference now when i see these sometimes i'm tempted to say my gosh this is out of the princess bride or perhaps the mitres are awfully very large you'll often see the mitres seem seem very very large in comparison to the way they used to look or even in comparison with the diminutive persona of the person being consecrated uh, and uh, the various different permutations of the robes. A part of this is because often um, uh, the bishop's former parish or former diocese make the robes, and the people that actually do the robes are very, very talented and often inspired people, but they often uh, don't know they just are of an age when they haven't seen what was done 40 years ago. So they may not, you know, they're they're sort of making it up, albeit very beautifully and with often tremendously radiant and exciting uh, colors and uh, presentations. I'm often reminded of ancient Egyptian art connected with Akhenaton, the uh, monotheist uh, pharaoh uh, who was always depicted, always depicted the sun with tremendous radiance. And I often have that vibe when I look at the, the designs of the new bishops who are consecrated. But take a current picture of an Episcopal 
consecration of a bishop, and then go back to secret service and see Father Unman in the pulpit, Richard Burton in the pulpit, and Knight of the Iguana, or the Sandpiper, and I think there's one other, David Niven in the pulpit in The Bishop's Wife, or in a more homespun way, the lovely, sweet rector who um, uh, marries Elizabeth Taylor to her um, uh, uh, affianced bridegroom in Father the Bride. And uh, you will just have a most delightful exercise in the way that fashions, literally in this case, that fashions can change. And you might say to yourself, what, is, what, is, what does this mean? What, is it, what does it say um, really about uh, where the uh, church is? Perhaps the new uh, robes are more countercultural. Uh, perhaps they are saying something of a, of a, of a make-it-up-yourself approach to something that doesn't quite have the cultural or social confidence that uh, a bishop... Uh, uh, Henry uh, Brougham had in The Bishop's Wife, or Father Unwin clearly has in his village in 1969 in Secret Service, or uh, the Reverend Dr. Edward Hewitt, who's chairman of the board, is a is a judge and who plays golf with all the local rich uh, sort of men uh, at Pebble Beach. Um, he doesn't do it for bad reasons, but he simply is in like Flint with the sort of establishment. And then it may be that this all reflects a very positive and truthful picture of a far more uh, interesting countercultural witness, or on the other hand, it could reflect any number of other possibilities. But I uh, am delighted that you've joined me in what may seem to be an extremely tiny sliver of the pie of life. Uh, And yet, uh, to those of us who are interested in church life um, and who love movies, and I'm sure I've left out some examples, I'm sure you can give me some other many examples from the 30s and 40s, and I know you can, oh, by the way, Frank Capra, uh, all you need to do is go to the wedding uh, at the end of It Happened One Night, and you'll have another example of ecclesiastical haberdashery in the Episcopal Church. But there probably are, oh, maybe a uh, hundred or at least 80 examples of um, Protestant Episcopalians in supermarionation in uh, Hollywood movies prior to 1979. I've just given you a few, and most of them are forgotten. And after all, you know, who, 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 what the heck? I mean, d- d- does, it, does anything matter at all? I mean, I used to talk about these things. Does it, does it matter? I'm not sure it does, uh, but it is kind of fun, and thank you for listening. And if I may truly say, uh, quoting Dr. Edward Hewitt, God bless you.